You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today our guest is Valerie Plame, and we are just delighted to have Valerie here. You may recall Valerie was, as they say, outed as an intelligence officer in, uh, in Novak's column in July of 2003, and of course then it made its way through the media and through the courts and uh, eventually led to uh, Valerie's uh, leaving the agency after some 20 years there. And uh, she also uh, did a book uh, called Fair Game, based on a statement uh, that was made by Carl Rove, as I recall. And uh, that book has just come out, and, and Valerie is presently on a book tour, in fact, has called here. We carry Valerie's book. Valerie, welcome. Thank you for having me. I think I'd like to start out, let me start out and just ask you why you joined the agency. What led you to join? I know you touch on this in your book, but I'm sure you've thought about it even since. Well, I I can't say that I grew up thinking, oh, I want to join the agency, but uh, my father was a career Air Force officer. He served in World War II in the South Pacific. Uh, my brother was a wounded Vietnam Marine Corps veteran. So this idea of public service ran in my family. And uh, I have to say, I like the idea of serving my country. It sounded like an exciting career. And in fact, it was one that I loved. Uh, and, and you did have an exciting career, didn't you? I did. <laughs> you you uh, occupied uh, a number of positions as an operations officer or case officer. You served overseas. Uh, you were back here working on counterproliferation issues. And then uh, we ran into the episode of, of your being outed and eventually you're doing this book. Let me ask you at the outset why you did the book. I wrote the book for two reasons. One it is a very important story to tell, I believe, of speaking truth to power and the consequences of doing so, uh, and how important it is to hold your government to account for its words and deeds. And this is that story. Um, it's told in personal terms as well as professional terms. And the second reason is really much more selfish. Uh, after I resigned from the agency in January 2006, I decided to write a book as a means, frankly, of processing everything that had happened to us. We had gone through everything, it seemed at about 100 miles an hour, and uh, by writing a book, I hope to make sense of some of it. 
You know, in reading your book, uh, one gets caught up in the excitement of your training, of your being sent out, of your trying to gain your sea legs as a case officer, of testing yourself as a woman in what was uh, a male-dominated uh, uh, part of the agency, the operations side. And I think you can sort of see a sense of disillusionment set in. Uh, we can peg it to a couple of things. But I think when you, when you first heard those famous 16 words in the State of the Union, you thought, well, they must know more than I do. And then you, uh, you process that, you learn more about the, the source and so forth, curveball. Did you have a sense then, and do you now, that politics has, has worked its way into the agency in a way perhaps that it never had before? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I believe very strongly that the politics that have been allowed to spill over into the intelligence community does us all a grave disservice. It, it distorts the mission, it undermines the product, and uh, therefore puts us all in grave danger. I think that every American wants to believe that the intelligence, the intelligence that lands on the president's desk is free of ideological taint, of political pressure, and we now know uh, that in the run-up to the war with Iraq, uh, Vice President Cheney and his then chief of staff, Scooter Libby, were over at the CIA headquarters an unprecedented number of times meeting with analysts because they weren't giving them the right answers that they wanted to hear about going to war with Iraq. And that, uh, I believe, is a, a terrible turn. Of course, the CIA has always been uh, somewhat tainted by politics. I'm not so naive. But the extent to this, which I believe this administration has uh, foisted onto the whole intelligence process uh, is uh, far, uh, you know, far greater than we've ever seen before. Well, let me just pick you up on that if I could, because you were, very, you were close to it in a way that the most of us were not. When I first read, heard and then later read that the vice president and, and Libby and perhaps other members of the staff had been out there at the agency, I was not upset by that. I thought, you know, we had always looked at our role as serving the executive and the policymakers, and I felt that, well, you know, if they're out there pushing the agency, that's okay. I mean, that's the, I mean, the function of the uh, – here we are looking at possibly going to war – um, I, and I didn't think it inappropriate at all for the vice president and, and his staff to push the agency to make sure they got it right. You're suggesting, though, that it wasn't about getting it right. Mm -hmm. uh, I would respectfully disagree with that viewpoint just because I think just through the very physical presence of the vice president, his chief of staff, uh, sitting around with, frankly, mid-level analysts, uh, they spoke later. These analysts, sometimes anonymously, came out and said they felt that there was pressure applied. Even, of course, it was subtle. Uh, but when you keep asking the same questions over and over, I mean, these analysts are very bright men and women. They get it. And uh, I think that we have spent decades building up an infrastructure. There are channels. There are uh, appropriate offices devoted just to doing that, making sure that senior U.S. policymakers get 
get their questions answered. If they need clarity, if they need confirmation, there are entire offices set up for that. Having uh, the vice president and his chief of staff go over, you know, cross the river, go over to Langley, and uh, show up in the analyst offices, I think oversteps those boundaries and distorts the process. I have nothing the matter with trying to get the answer right, but not through that method. Do you, you know, we are, we are doing this broadcast two days after the new NIE has come out on Iran, and uh, in, 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 which is, of course, unusual. You and I are not used to seeing NIEs uh, uh, published and, uh, on the front pages of the, of the New York Times. Um, and they say, they say, that is, the intelligence community is reportedly saying, well, this is a new process. We are ensuring that, you know, one view doesn't distort the others, that things that, that dissent is not buried in footnotes. What was your reaction to seeing this new NIE in Iran? Well, I think it significantly shifts the whole uh, picture on this, doesn't it? Because one had been done previously that said, uh, uh, 2005, I think, that said Iran was barreling full speed ahead. And now we have one that says, oops, we were terribly wrong. Uh, in 2003, they have, for all intents and purposes, stopped uh, their, this uh, research. I take that as a, a couple ways. Um, one, uh, if, if it was done, the methodology was clear and transparent and dissent was, in fact, factored in, um, new sourcing, um, I rejoice in that. It shows that the intelligence community has found some backbone and some gumption, and it will certainly make this administration's uh, case for war against Iran uh, more problematic. Uh, but when you step back a little bit further, uh, we really are in a very difficult position vis-a-vis -vis Iran because of our missteps in Iraq. We, uh, so first of all, we've, <laughs> uh, we've uh, helped out Iran. We've taken away two of their enemies, the Taliban and Saddam Hussein. Iran didn't have to do a thing. They're sitting in the catbird seat. And our options are extremely limited, strategically speaking. And uh, I, would, uh, I would argue that we are a great country and great countries can afford to speak to even their enemies. So I hope that is factored in. Uh, again, this release of the NIE changes, uh, changes everything, and certainly uh, how the allies view it and so forth will be a part of the dialogue going forward. You know, I'm going to just jump ahead a minute. It's quite clear that you're still following issues quite closely. Um, do you have any plans perhaps to uh, either engage in consulting or perhaps teaching in, in the years to come? I don't know. Uh, my family moved about seven months ago uh, from Washington, D.C. to New Mexico, and uh, which is a beautiful part of the world. We're very happy there. Uh, good place to raise a family. I'm, as you noted, in the middle of this book tour, so my head is spinning from all the travel. I really don't know what I'm going to do next. We, My husband and I... Uh, very much want to move beyond this, contribute again in some way. We don't know how. I do think about teaching. There are some universities in Santa Fe and Albuquerque. Uh, but I don't know. I'm just not there yet. Okay. I think uh, one of the things that obviously plays a role and it comes out so strongly in the book are the twins. <laughs> mm -hmm. How are they doing? They're doing well, thank you. They'll be eight in January, 
And uh, given how tumultuous their household has been for four and a half years, uh, they are doing better than we could ever have hoped. They're happy, healthy kids. They've made friends. They love Santa Fe. Uh, they're doing well. Uh, it's important, Joe and I do keep in mind that uh, one day when they are older and they ab- have absorbed all this and read about it and understand it in more adult terms, uh, they may ask us, you know, where were you when it counted? And uh, we are far from perfect, but we have tried to get through this with our integrity intact and grace when we can find it, and we want to have a good answer for them when they ask that. I think one of the most, uh, uh, certainly humanized your story, but I think one of the most touching parts of your story is uh, the description of the stresses on your marriage, of trying to deal with the twins, uh, your own uh, depression, as it were. I mean, you actually include a page with postpartum resources there at the end of the book. I think that's wonderful because so often I think people see these Washington stories as something that happens in two dimensions. You know, it's a newspaper, it's a three-day story, and these aren't real people and they don't have real problems, they don't have financial issues. And you bring it very much alive, you and Joe, and I just think that's to your great credit uh, that you've told the story in those terms. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I tried to be very honest professionally and personally. And uh, you're right. This isn't just, I think, it isn't, uh, Holly, uh, wa- excuse me, Washington pundits tend to say, well, this is just sort of politics as usual. But it's not. Uh, what happened with the betrayal of my covert identity, I believe, was absolutely treasonous. And uh, and you're right. There are human people <laughs> behind this. It's not not just stick figures, and uh, we we've paid a cost. Yeah. Let me take let's uh, let's return to what uh, to uh, what I consider a less happy part of your experience, and that was the uh, your uh, uh, the process of getting your th- book through the publications review board, which, uh, as you point out, all agency employees sign an agreement that they'll have. Uh, formal writings on intelligence reviewed so they don't inadvertently give away classified information. Uh, your process was quite protracted, painful, I would say, and uh, looking at your book, uh, it's published with a number of redactions. Uh, could you just return to, to that for a moment, and, and what comments do you have today, now that the book is out, Indeed, uh, on that? Uh, it was a painful and protracted process. Uh, I, when I signed uh, the secrecy agreement, I had every intention uh, of fulfilling that. I'm a, a professional intelligence officer. I have no desire to jeopardize classified information. And going into it, uh, I knew that because this whole issue with the leak was highly politicized and partisan in nature, that it would be uh, problematic, to say the least. But I also knew that the agency, the PRB, the Publication Review Board, had just in the last few years, literally reviewed and allowed dozens of books by former operations officers to be published. So I didn't expect um, any special treatment. I just wanted equitable treatment. So uh, when the manuscript uh, was finally read by the chairman of the PRB, he told me that it was not problematic with this one huge exception which is the agency has taken the position that I am not permitted to acknowledge my agency affiliation prior to January 2002. So I was a non-person before that. This position 
despite the plethora of information in the public domain, the, all the information on my background, experiences, and so forth. And uh, it just didn't seem to make any sense. Uh, and they certainly never gave us a reason for that. Uh, and I and my lawyers uh, worked very closely. We tried to cooperate, cooperate be responsible uh, with the PRB. We wanted to do the right thing at all steps. And th this went on for over a year until it became excruciatingly clear that uh, the agency uh, was moving into First Amendment territory, censorship. And this deeply disappointed me because I see what was happening as not actually protecting classified information, but a further means of intimidating and uh, vindictive behavior on behalf of this administration toward uh, a critic. And the agency was a willing tool in that. So at a certain point uh, this summer, this past summer, uh, my publisher, Simon and & Schuster, and I felt that we had no choice but to sue the CIA. And in the course of that, uh, the government submitted a classified brief to the judge in the case, which neither I nor my lawyers were permitted to see, which only added to the whole sort of Alice in Wonderland, black is white and white is black sense of going down the rabbit hole. And it must have said that the world would stop spinning if they knew how long I served my country. Uh, because uh, the judge decided in the government's favor. We are appealing. Uh, but uh, I am, I f it feels like another betrayal, frankly, all over again. And uh, my, uh, my respect for what and my notions of, of the integrity that an intelligence officer should have was... Uh, damaged. Do you feel, uh, in the end, after all of that process, only one person really was found guilty of anything relating to the, to the outing, and that was Scooter Libby. Do you feel, Scooter Libby, do you feel in some ways he was, he was a fall guy for a much broader uh, effort? Uh, well, indeed he was, but don't forget he was convicted, the most important count, on obstruction of justice which, as Special Prosecutor Fitzgerald said, uh, was the equivalent of throwing eye, uh, sand in the eyes of the umpire. Uh, so he couldn't really get to the bottom of what happened and what the conspiracy was. Now, we just learned recently that uh, the, the White House former press secretary, Scott McClellan, has said that the president, his chief of staff, Andy Card, the vice president, were all, as he said, involved they knew that when McClellan went out to face the press and the American public and said Mr. Libby and Mr. Rove had no part in this leak or no knowledge, they actually all knew that he that that, that was not the truth. Uh, so this story continues to have its twists and turns, uh, and uh, it uh, it is it's one story of this administration, but it's an important one uh, because. Um, my, all, what all started this was my husband, Joe Wilson's op-ed piece in the New York Times, in which he took on the administration's primary rationale for going to war in Iraq, which was the imminent nuclear threat. You know, it, it's interesting. We started out at the top of the broadcast noting why you joined the agency, and you did have an ex, an ex, actually an exhilarating career. Uh, you achieved a senior position. You had a very senior position in the counterproliferation uh, staff. 
and uh, and yet there's this uh, sad ending. In other words, the whole business of, of of your career being taken out of your hands by forces totally beyond your control, and then quite clearly feeling let down by the agency, by the Publications Review Board, uh, by perhaps others. What would you say to we? We have a lot of young people. We understand listening to this uh, to this part to this spycast. What would you say to a young person, perhaps even one of your own children, in the years to come, if they asked you about your thoughts, if they were considering joining the agency? Um, I would say, uh, first of all, if none of this had happened, uh, I would be living and working overseas with my family, working on counterproliferation issues. Uh, I love doing that. I love my career. I felt like I was contributing contributing to something bigger than myself. But that obviously didn't happen. And I felt uh, when I resigned, I had given it a great deal of thought. And I thought I had the best job in the agency. And I could no longer do it. I could no longer live and work in a covert capacity overseas. So it, And just too much had happened. So I felt that the resignation was the only option I had left, really. Uh, and despite my own personal experience, uh, I would, I, I've been speaking a lot to students at university campuses across the country. I always urge them to consider public service because I believe that our country is going through some very dangerous times. We need all the smart young people we can possibly get. Uh, they might, I might urge them to wait a few years. Hopefully the, uh, the politics are able to be pushed back out of the intelligence. Uh, uh, community uh, and the professionals will have to do that but it is uh, it is not a lucrative career you don't uh, join to uh, make money but you join for other reasons and they are, those reasons are still valid we re I do believe despite all our flaws we are the greatest country in the world and it was an honor to have served uh, so I would certainly, uh, with certain caveats, encourage any young person to consider a career in public service. Well, Valerie, it's been terrific having you as a guest. And I'd like to end the broadcast. I'd like to thank you for your service to your country and uh, wish you the very, very best in the years to come for both you and your family. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.